This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. After draws in Perth and Adelaide, the Ashes arrives in Melbourne ahead of the world-famous Boxing Day Test match. England one up. A win here secures the series. Except, happy Christmas, everyone. If we've learned anything by now, it's cricket second, party first. On England cricket tours, you always have a Christmas Day party and there's always a fancy dress party. Christmas Day is always a Melbourne test. So we were in Melbourne. That's the author Frances Edmonds on tour with her left-arm spinner of a husband, Phil. If they're normally near the front of the party line, Gladstone Small's not far behind. That was a really a well-established drills of touring of England going back the ages. When you're aware, the social, the Saturday night socials and the, and the Christmas there was always on the agenda. Even skipper Mike Gatting's into it. Yeah, well, look, the fancy dress party was fantastic. All the family was out there. The Ashes is a great tour, but actually that Christmas party is just amazing, especially the fancy dress. This bodes well. On that particular day, I don't know what they do nowadays, but the fancy dress, we were all given a letter and we had to dress up according to the letter we were given. You had to put your hand in a hat and pull out a letter. From that letter, we had to concoct a costume that we would turn up to at the luncheon that was put on by the TCCB, as it was in those days. My name is Chris Broad. My letter was K. Z. My letter was Z. I mean, crikey. Oh, I'm, I dressed up as a pirate, so I think I must have got a P of some sort. King of Siam, which I don't know why. What do you come as dressed as Z? There was a fancy dress shop in somewhere near the hotel in Melbourne that we all trooped along to, to order our fancy dress outfit to pick up when we came back for that um, Christmas day. So Zed, I mean, geez. Well, it's, look, it's, <laughs> I'll tell the story. Philip De Freitas, uh, ex-England cricketer. <laughs> Letter D. <laughs> so I went into this shop with this letter and I said, mate, what can I use with this letter? He says, Mike, well, I haven't got a zebra. I was panicking. D, I can't think of anything. D. So we went to the fancy dress shop, and I remember I went with Gladstone and Lois, his partner then, and I said, D, I'm D, I need a costume for D, you know, and this bloke's looking at me and said, we haven't really got anything for D. And I'm thinking, D, bloody D, can't you get me something? So, I don't know. The only thing I have here is, is a Zorro. So no zebra, so I had to be Zorro. The mask, the cape, the full works. And he looked at me and he went, I've got the perfect thing for you. He said, I've got this beautiful red dress. <laughs> at this stage, I've looked at him going, what's this bloke on about? And he says, I've got this lovely black wig and I've got size 10 and a half heels as well. And he says, look, you know, you're struggling here. Why don't you go as Diana Ross? <laughs> He was Diana Ross, that's exactly right. He was gorgeous. Wow. <laughs> she, do you know what? She was, uh, I love Frances. She was fantastic. 
the more and more I think, you know, you look back, it was such a wonderful tour. You know, it, it, there was a family atmosphere, you know, and we were very tight and cared about each other. And I was just very, very lucky. And I, and I was experiencing something which I felt was just amazing. And Frances was, you know, she was wonderful. She was wonderful. I don't know if you did, I don't know if he did a sort of a, a secondary career in burlesque or in drag, but he certainly had all the attributes. <laughs> it's the 25th of December 1986, otherwise known as the eve of a really important test match. But that would be boring. To most, including this lot, it's simply Christmas Day. Christmas Day was about dressing up and enjoying the social side of touring. That was a big day. I mean, the Christmas Day, we started off, the press guys you know, threw us a champagne breakfast that morning. So at nine o'clock, we all had to just get, get down full, you know, no, no going to the, the MCGs to have a practice, none of that crap. It was a champagne breakfast for a few hours with the press guys, because back then it was just one big touring family. So um, Christmas lunch, fancy dress lunch, got dressed. Lois went into Gladys' room, Lois. She did my makeup and she said, you'd look so much better when you took the tash. I said, Lois, I don't want to look better. <laughs> and we had this wonderful five, six hour lunch. We then had to stay in our costume. Noel Edmonds was doing one of his big Christmas show things. We appeared on the Noel Edmonds Christmas show. Uh, the whole squad were sat in the hotel and wives and girlfriends back in the UK were in the studio in, in London. And I remember Noel Edmonds was asking me a question and my wife at the time had Stuart as a young boy and he was in the company of Noel Edmonds and was fast asleep. I remember, you know, you've got a test match the next day. I remember sort of once it was over, you know, your Christmas was over and then it's... To be honest, after that, it was a bit boring, really, because you're just killing time. You're killing time and you're back into your, your room and, and that's it, really. Watch a bit of TV and get ready for tomorrow. I don't know whatever people did. <laughs> the family I stayed with, they had a place down the beach um, about an hour or so out of Melbourne. So I was getting calls that Christmas evening. Come on, Gladdy. It's a lovely evening down here on the beach. You know, you're not, you're not going to play tomorrow, so you might as well come and have a party with us or all that sort of stuff. But the captain will always say, right, guys, the rest of you, just in case, you know, be prepared, just in case something happens overnight, someone comes down with food poisoning or Gatton eats a, a bad prone or something like that, just be prepared that you can come into the team. So I, I rebuffed all of these requests to come out and keep on the piss with, with my Melbourne mates. Actually, I've got a picture in here. I've got my book here somewhere. And I'm sure there's a picture of all of us in the... Uh in the fancy dress somewhere. Yeah, there we are. Yeah, look, there we are. I don't know if you can see. There's all the, all the sort of coloured pictures of everybody. It was a really, really sort of uh, fantastic party. Um, and I think put everybody in a great spirit for the Boxing Day test. Match day arrives, Boxing Day. And today it's all about the letter G, the MCG. I'd had this image in my mind of what it means to be a, an England player playing against the Aussies at the MCG on Boxing Day. Boxing Day, Boxing Day, Boxing Day. Boxing Day test match, the atmosphere, it was just madness. 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 I remember walking into the ground and when we went out to warm up and practice, 
but you look up and you just think it's it's just a massive it's just enormous and then you've got one side boundary which is just miles the dressing rooms at the mcg are down in the basement of this massive stand and you have to come up the windy staircase and there's a viewing gallery it's soundproof and you can see out what people can't see in the noise was just building up to the crescendo. And all the guys, in the, even the senior players who was in that team, I was looking around the room and everyone was just deathly quiet. It wasn't a, a murmur. And I'm looking around, I'm thinking, this is crazy. And the, and the walk down, I remember from the change of the walk down, and you're thinking, I don't really want to walk down that far to get a naught and come straight back up. <laughs> In the history of the Ashes, the Australians have always beaten us. Going back to you know, pre-Bradman and Bradman times, and yes, we've had the odd bit of success against them, but guys, if you can beat them, you will put yourself in amongst a really select bunch of people, because not many England teams have gone to Australia and beaten the Australians. And if you ask, obviously it's the best tour that I did. I mean, they would say it's the best tour that, that they ever went on. Yes, we won. But we also had the best of times as well. There's an important distinction between Phil De Freitas and Gladstone Small here. Daffy's in the team. Gladdy is 12th man. One of the great things about that trip as well was also touring Australia at the time was Elton John. My passport says I'm David Gower. One of the most bizarre, in a sense, but lovely things about this 86-87 tour was that we had possibly the most famous fan ever as a one-man Barmy Army, a fellow called John, Elton John. So he was on the outfield, and Graham Dilly was bowling, was, was just bowling, just lobbing some balls to Elton John and on the outfield that Boxing Day morning. Captain Mike Gatting's Christmas has just taken an unexpected turn. Graham Dilly had come up to me 40 minutes before the toss and said, Gat, Gat, I can't play. I said, what's that? He said, my knee's gone. I can't play. I said, you're joking. He said, no, no, no. He said, I can't play. I went, oh, my God. So I've sort of gone back in, having just about to have a leisurely stroll out to the middle. Stills just said he can't play. He said, what? So I said, well, it's either Gladstone or, or Fozzie. I said, well, what do you think? I said, well, what do you think? I said, well, is it Fozzie? Is it Gladdy? Fozzie will think that he's going to get it because he can bat a bit, but Gladdy probably bowled a little bit better, a little bit tidier. Um, oh, dear, what do we do? I'm in the basement mixing you know, the drinks because that was one of the, the duties of a young touring guy. You, you have duties you've got to perform, and hence ma making the drinks was one of them. And Gat came down to get his blazer on to go toss the coin with Alan Border. And he said, hey, Stoney, Stoney, you're, you're, Dill, Graham Dilly, just pull his hammy, you know, feeling the ball from Elton John. <laughs> but when I last saw him, that's what he was doing. He was bowling to Elton John in the net set at the, at the MCG. <laughs> he would have been bowling Elton John in the team room about midnight. <laughs> After having about three bottles of red wine, Dill. <laughs> so I said, all right, we'll go for Gladdy. 
So you've, you, you're, you're playing, you, you've decided that you're, you're playing. So I've gone out there, I've, I'm all of a sudden, my head's all over the place and, you know, I think I've even named Graham Dilly and I said, oh no, not Dill, no, sorry, he's injured. <laughs> um, we, we've got Gladstone. Gladstone Small becomes an England hero in this match. He just doesn't know it yet. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Growing up, the Lord's Test match was always special in our house because my dad was an MCC member and we'd always go for a day. But even as a kid, I knew there was something magical and mystical about the MCG Boxing Day Test match, particularly against England. And in this 86 series on Boxing Day, we went to a friend's house and from memory, there were I think they might have had three tellies on because Boxing Day is the start of the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race. The next telly had the Australia-Sweden-Davis Cup final, which was starting, also being played in Melbourne. And the third had the start of the Boxing Day Test. Fast forward 20 years and I've had a phone call from BBC Radio to say, we want you to go and cover the Ashes tour. How do you feel about that? Well, I practically drove to Heathrow there and then. And walking up on that Boxing Day in 2006, even though the series had gone, I mean, the MCG, or the G as they call it, it's not cricket ground, it's an extraordinary sporting venue which seems to dominate the skyline of Melbourne. You can almost see it from wherever you are, not quite, but it feels like that. And walking up to it, it was gigantic, it was massive, awe-inspiring, and you thought, I'm going to a Boxing Day test match involving England and Australia. It's the 26th of December 1986, the fourth test match, the Boxing Day test match. Australia have to win to keep the series alive. Half of Melbourne, it seems, comes out to support Alan Border's stumbling side. I suppose it was one of those, you know, dodging a few bullets here and there. You know, we, we'd sort of played OK to hang in to a couple of contests there, uh, you know, in Perth and Adelaide, but we weren't playing particularly well. So yeah, there, were, there was just signs that there was a little bit of a cracks appearing in our demeanour, if you like. No great signs of actually turning things around, actually getting the better of England at that point. So going to Melbourne, I suppose it's just a, it's a great festive time of the year. Generally, it's a great test match to be playing in. The families are there and it's just a, you know, a good time of the year. But yeah, this particular game didn't go too well. <laughs> Crucial for England is that both them's back in the team although it sounds like he shouldn't be. Beefy was, was injured. He pulled his intercostal muscle. And the intercostal muscle is this little, about the size of a 50 pence coin in, in, his, in his side, on, in the rib cage. So it's a very hard muscle. You can't do anything. You can, even breathing is hard work. And so to bowl a cricket ball is, is not even fathomable. So he would say, he just said, listen guys, we're one nil up against Australia with two matches to play. There's, there's absolutely no way I'm not going to play this test match. So listen, get the doctor to stick whatever he wants in me. I've had everything else anyway. I'm playing this test match. So he was nowhere near fit either. So I was a little bit nervous about Beefy. He was sort of 60% fit. He would tell you he's 75, 80, but he was about 65% fit. I bowled at probably about 40, 45, 50% at the most. 
Very sore. It's uh, Ian Botham here, uh, known to all of you lot as Beefy. I really wasn't 100% fit, anywhere near 100% fit. But it's up here, isn't it, the game of cricket? And uh, a lot of it is. And I got a picked up five for Let's not get ahead of ourselves, Beefy. England win another toss. Mike Gatting elects to field. So Gatting wins the toss <laughs> and with an injured senior bowler and a guy making his Ashes debut playing my third test match, he decides to bowl first. <laughs> anyway, first over from Gladstone. First ball went wide down the leg side. Ball a couple of wides down the leg side and tried to recorrect it and got a couple of wides outside the off stump. The next one went wide down the off side. The third one went wide down the legs and I'm going, oh my God. Obviously still nerves, a bit of nerves around. Oh, what have I done? You know, oh, I got the wrong one. So I remember watching Gat, seeing Gat. That uh, second sniff of his hand is sort of his hands and his, his, his head sort of thing, thinking, oh, why didn't I not pick Neil Foster instead of Small? <laughs> anyway, next one he bowled it, good length, swung away, straight through, through to the slips, and, and then the next three went the same. And then, oh, thank goodness for that, you know. And then I, I got my rhythm going. I bowled, got a good one to Booney, who nicked it to the keeper, and then I got Dean Jones. You just forget that people like that are nervous. Because it was important, so I'd put them in. I'd won the toss and put them in in a test match. And I got a half-fit both of them, and a guy just come out from doing drinks to actually playing. And it worked. And it worked. Then all of a sudden, Beefy came on and bowled some of, some of the worst deliveries you'll ever get test wickets. You know, they were really the worst deliveries you'll think that, that you'll get wickets with. Yeah, he just sort of ambled in and bowled lollygold bliss bombs, I call them. But he got five of us out, including me. Beefy to get those wickets, you know, all, all, you know, one of the great players of all time, don't get me wrong, but that particular day, he, he's bowling half rat power. And uh, I just shake my head when I see the occasional replay of that uh, particular dismissal. I think, you know, what, what were you thinking, Alan? Like, it's just, it, that's just terrible. If I look back at some of the, the wickets and how they got out to me, it was quite bizarre, really. I suppose that's when people realised that maybe I do have the wood. As they used to say, as they say in Australia, had the wood over the uh, Aussies. Australia are skittled out for 141. The 10 wickets shared between just two bowlers. I remember walking off. The big man came around and put his arm over my shoulder and he's Tony, well bowled, mate, well bowled, five for. I said, well, hang on a minute, mate. But look at my five. Proper balls, proper fast bowling wickets. You know, caught keeper, caught slip, ball off stump. You're a fiver, he says, mate. They're five effing Australians, mate, and I'm keeping them all. They're not going back, so let's let's just enjoy this moment together. Anyway, we only had done half a job after that first day bowling them out. Then we needed to have a, a good opening partnership, which we did. Uh, and Jess was still there after day one, and going into day two. Jess hadn't heard that one. Mike Gatting has got a rather odd nickname for opener Chris Broad. Ah, uh, there's. Uh, there's some uh, hoardings up at Trent Bridge with Jess Broad on builders, so we called him Jess. Yeah, we used to call him Carly as well. I don't know if you heard the word nickname Carly. Carly, Carly. So they they had this this recording of Carly Simon and the song "You're So Vain." He was always in the, in the old hair, just brushing the old hair back, especially when he, he got all the publicity about all their hundreds and bristly, he was combing his hair, lovely. So when that comes on, I I think of Broadie. Carly, Jess, or just plain 
Chris Broad is having another superb test match. In fact, when he reaches three figures, a third successive century, he becomes only the third English batsman to achieve such a feat in an Ashes series after Jack Hobbs and Wally Hammond. To know that uh, you know my name is alongside some of the greats of the game, not being a great myself, it's something that I can go to my son and say, have you ever done this? <laughs> and I mean, he can come back with an awful lot more, but uh, he can't ever do that. And, and I said to him only the other day, you know, I've won a series in Australia. Have you? Have you? Have you? Stuart Broad has the chance to answer that question this winter, but for now, he defers to Dad on foreign ashes tours. We were very much in a, in a good place. And again, they started losing wickets. You sort of never give up at that point, but um, uh, you, you know you're in serious trouble. You know, you've got to do you know, remarkably well to turn around. Thanks to Broad's 112, England's lead was 208 as Australia started their second innings on day three. When they fall two down with under 50 on the board, enter the home skipper to try to save the match. You look at those first innings runs and uh, they're like gold, you know, if you get... You can sort of control the game a lot more if you've made a decent score first up. And when you make 100 and, what was it, 140 odd in our first innings, I mean, you're staring right down the barrel because uh, the pitch is starting to settle down. Yeah, the riding was on the wall, but uh, yeah, we hadn't sort of waved the, the white flag just yet. Border is the guy who just, I mean, he's one of the toughest opponents that I bowl against. I remember once when he played for Essex against Warwickshire, and we had, we had a West Indian quick bowler called, a guy called Tony Merrick, who was really quick. Border was having a go at him, and Border, as he was, came in really chest out, you know, and Merrick just clogged him on the, on, the, on the side of this helmet really hard, really hard, and he was down, he was down on his hunches. And we all went around concerned for, you know, are you okay, are you okay? He said, oh, yeah, I might just piss off. Where's my bat, where's my helmet? And he, for the next hour, he just, he, he just took him on. Brilliant contest. And that was Borda, a tough competitor. We'd wave the white, white flag really badly, just insipid performance, you know, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a poor display from us. We were talking about AV in the second innings. He started to play really well. He was getting some runs and we were sort of talking, do we have three slips or, or two in a gully? Because he was really playing quite positively and we were struggling to get through. And we knew once we got him out, that was it. It was going to be finished. And it was so important. So... I said, look, let's just have three slips, eh? Two balls later, he's bowled this one. And Embers is standing at third slip. I'm at second. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm at first and Beefy at second. And Embers, if it was anybody else, he wouldn't have caught it. It just stuck his hand out and it was high above his head and his left hand. It just went straight in. End of test match. AB was out and that was it. Embers takes the flying catch, John Embry. Whether him, Jack Richards or Ian Botham, this was typical of England's brilliant fielding. The fielding, the standards we set. Uh, I don't remember us dropping a catch. I do not remember a catch going down. That doesn't happen very often. And if they did, if we did drop one, it must have been the one because I don't remember any of them. And normally you can sit back on a tour and think, if only we did that. Uh, if we'd have done this, it would have held on to that. But I don't remember us dropping anything in the test series. Embry, along with his spin partner Phil Edmonds, are unsung heroes. Between them, they take the final four wickets of this fourth test match. With a little help from the star of this show, Zorro himself, Gladstone Small.
It was magnificent because he not only got to the Pfeiffer and, and whatever and bowled really well, got a few important runs, but he actually took the last catch out at deep square leg off Philip Edmonds to win the game. Edmonds, who was very pedantic about his, his field setting, I was on the sweep, on the sweep behind square leg. He kept telling me, move round, get, get squarer, get squarer. Now I move round square and he says, right, Smalley, put an X, put an X by where you're standing because you boys like moving around, you like darts in the outfield, he says. So I put an X there. So I put this X right on the mark and the next ball he bowled to Merv, Merv had his only shot, the old hike, top edge, up in the Melbourne sky and I steadied myself and took this catch and I was standing directly above the X where Philly Edmonds told me to mark. You just have to say, you can't say anymore. You can't do any better than that. You know, when you get thrown in the deep end, he came through and he was, he was just fantastic. Stupidly, he threw the ball in the crowd, I think, as well. I wish I'd kept that ball now because it took us a long time before we, we beat the Australians again in Australia. I never actually ever never thought about it until about, you know, 15 years later. And a guy came up to me in a bar and did say he actually had, I threw the ball, it landed just on the outfield near the boundary rope. And this guy reached, you know, stepped over the boundary ropes and picked the ball up and took it home. And I, I, I should have, I should have then, I should have made him an offer then. And even then I didn't really register to make an offer for the ball. So some, somewhere in Melbourne, there has been some dog chewing this, this cricket ball for the last 25 years or so. The significance of the moment hits home. Gladstone Small, off the bowling of Phil Edmonds, has just taken the catch to win the Test match, the series, and the bragging rights. At the time, we were just thinking, take this catch. Then it registers. That's the catch that wins the Ashes. By the time we got to the dressing room, the only Englishman that was in the dressing room was Elton John. Elton came in to congratulate, hey, well, well played, guys, all that sort of stuff. And then we just started, we, the party started. There's nothing quite like winning the Ashes. You know, there's champagne, there is celebration. We're all elated, there's champagne all over the place. And we have, you know, the world's greatest rock star who is in there with us, which you know, makes for a fantastic photograph and a fantastic memory. He came in the dressing room and they took the icebox over him and uh, he said, well, that's 30 grand gone, his suit. <laughs> so, <laughs> that magic day, basically, securing the Ashes in Melbourne, a party with Elton John at his expense, lavish expense, that is not something you will forget in a hurry. You knew they weren't coming home terribly early that night. England have won the Ashes with a match to spare, but the night is only just beginning. So the party, by the time we finish at the MCG, back to Beefy's suite. And Beefy, on that trip, he'd bought this massive portable CD player. He only had three CDs. By this stage, two months into the tour, he was sick of listening to these three CDs. So by about eight o'clock that night, after about four or five hours drinking, it's fair to say, the party mood was starting to, to simmer a bit. And then the doors of this suite swung open and in waltz Elton. And he, he waltz and he says, right, where's the party? Why are you not partying? You bloody lot, you just beat the Aussies to win the ashes. You should be partying. He DJ'd. Elton DJ'd. He DJ'd for the parties. So we had EJ the DJ. Then we had a bit of a party that evening and he threw it. But we called him EJ the DJ. We showed him Beefy's CD player. He says, right, music, music. And he showed his three CDs. He said, what? Three CDs. 
and he sent his driver off back to his hotel. And half an hour later, the driver came back wheeling two suitcases, two large suitcases full of CDs. Elton John's DJ, I felt like saying, Elton, do you want to give us a tune, mate? <laughs> and he DJed our party right the way through. Now, I promise you, the morning, there were people were going to work, going to the office in Melbourne, and the party was still going by this stage, and we were, and we were still, Elton was still DJing. Oh, like, it was certainly like when I left the room anyway. Elton, what he was 12th man. He kept us going for a, for a hell of a long time. He was fantastic. Elton was brilliant. Uh, yeah, it was a great night. It was a great night. Went on and on. You know, what would you like to drink, mate? You know, and it was like, this is Elton John. Yeah, it was incredible, incredible. Elton hardly played any of his songs. He Crocodile Rock was probably the only one he played. A really, really bouncy number with him jumping all over the sofas and stuff like that. It was just, it was just one of those moments where it was just magical, absolutely magical. Absolutely magical. For England's celebrations, for Australia. The inquest. It was one of those line in the sand moments, you know, we're not going to play like that anymore, that's it. And from this rock bottom, the journey back to the top of the world begins. At the end of that losing Ashes summer, Australia won the World Cup. To beat England in that final after being beaten in the Ashes was quite significant. Oh, it was just huge. Inside the Tour, The Ashes is presented by Mark Pugach, original music and sound design by Lee Sperry, additional music Dan Compton, produced by Jonathan Overend at 9419 for Audi.